Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today we'll explore a variety of art forms in Atlanta. Actors Express is launching its virtual downstage initiative. Artistic director Freddie Ashley will tell us about the programming for this new theatrical online experience. What's in a name? The Atlanta Jewish Music Festival has been renamed Naranana. We'll hear from executive director and pianist Joe Alterman about the expanded concert and culture series. First, a cinematic look at the impact of vanity on self-concept. Christina Yoon is an Atlanta-based filmmaker and director. Mirror is the title of her new film, which takes a close look at Korean beauty standards, as well as the extreme measures people will take to achieve their idea of perfection. She joins us now via Zoom. Christina Yoon, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Would you tell us a bit about your background in film and what led you to create Mirror? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've studied film for undergrad and grad. Um, wanted to be a filmmaker since a very young age. And Mirror just ex- explores a lot of my own life experiences, um, being a Korean American woman, growing up in a very diverse area of of Georgia, actually Gwinnett County, where there are a lot of um, Korean communities, and and being very aware of that that beauty standard, that beauty pressure, my entire life, and then moving to Korea for two years after undergraduate studies, and just seeing the full extent of that, how how severe and um, intense it really is in Korea for the women there. It surprises me that this can be a cultural phenomenon. Do you really think there is such a cultural difference in the way Koreans emphasize physical beauty? I do. I, 
I do think there is a difference. I mean, of course, in America, it's it's here, the Western standards of beauty, we see it every day in social media and in the media of um, a kind of idealized beauty that isn't very realistic. But in Korean culture, it's part of everyday life of the, the value of beauty. It's part of the society. I mean, when you apply for jobs in Korea, you are required to send in a headshot no matter what with your resume, no matter what job you're applying for, if your looks don't matter at all. And it's so common in Korean culture for young teenagers to get plastic surgery procedures done, small procedures done. It's very much the norm there. And I, I think it, it, it was something that I questioned very deeply when I lived there. I felt myself being affected by those pressures of, of feeling that if, you know, I wasn't dressed up a certain way or didn't have makeup on that I wouldn't, you know, be taken seriously or, or treated nicely. It's quite severe there. Yeah. And that's something I wanted to explore. This fascinates me because what I'm about to tell you is strictly anecdotal, but it also supports everything you're saying. There is a brilliant Korean-American violinist, Sarah Chang, whom I interviewed the first time when she was a very young teenager. And I was asking her what it was like to perform before Queen Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, she had had this extraordinary career already as a child. And she was just this very normal kid off stage who said she loved spending most of her time shopping for clothes. <laughs> and, and, you know, that that's not unusual for a teenage girl. But the next time she visited, I noticed how exquisitely she was made up. And this was an afternoon interview after a long rehearsal at Symphony Hall. And a friend of mine who was in the building at the time said, you know, when I remarked on how pulled together Sarah was, my friend said, well, she's Korean. What do you expect? And and I said, well, I didn't know that, knew any particular nationality. And then a, a friend of ours who is an academic, also Korean-born, when I told her this story about Sarah Chang, she said that, her mother will not leave the house to go grocery shopping unless she is completely dolled up, including wearing gloves. I mean, how many ladies wear gloves anymore? So I guess this is cultural, but do you know how far back it goes? Was was there an emphasis on beauty in ancient times? You know, I've, I've really thought about that um, and I've wondered about it. You know, I'm no historian, but I do have my suspicions that it has something to do possibly with Korea's very fast economic rise. You know, Korea was a third world country just some decades ago 
And there was a huge economic boom in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, where it is now one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world, extremely modern and, and very wealthy. And so I think the speed at, as to which the country developed might have something to do with that, where, you know, um, some decades ago, there wasn't enough money to, to eat properly. And now there's a surplus of money that is being spent on on these new things that are important for the current society. Luxurious. Very good insight. The story of Mira follows a Korean woman wanting to get a scar removed from her face. That doesn't seem unusual. I mean, it's still voluntary cosmetic surgery, but having a scar removed is not the same as wanting a facelift or a nose job. What can you tell us about Yona, the main character, and the pressures she feels about her disfiguration? I think that you're absolutely right that removing a scar doesn't seem to be much of an issue. And that's certainly what she goes into the hospital to do. She finds herself then pressured by the hospital to go beyond that um, with the mentality of, if you're going to do a procedure, why not go all the way? And why not make yourself as beautiful as possible? So that's sort of the question that she's facing now is, is it enough for me to remove the scar? And and will I be able to look myself in the mirror and and feel that I'm worth worthy and beautiful? Or do I need to go even more extreme? And ultimately, I think that the question is one of her emotional state of, of how she feels about herself, her mental state psychologically, you know, someone could get a procedure done and feel like it's not enough and want to keep getting more and more. And it has more to do with her mental health than anything else, I think. Absolutely. And I've read that you are especially interested in exploring identity in your films and your characters. In Mirror, Yona watches K-pop stars on video. How have K-pop idols and their appearance influenced Korean culture? I think that it has pushed it to to a level of perfection um, that was not there before. I think that also many K-pop stars are pressured to be pushed towards a specific beauty ideal of being thin extremely thin, of being pale, of having large eyes, of being feminine. And so the the specificity of that, of how narrow that is, and how it's not widely accepting of many different types of beauty, I think is putting a specific kind of pressure on Korean society. In the film, Yeona goes to an underground black market hospital known as the Hallelujah Hospital. What kind of procedures do the doctors at that hospital perform? Well, it is it's a fictional hospital, but I think that they probably perform all kinds of procedures. Um, double eyelids uh, surgeries are very common in Asian um, culture. And, you know, breast augmentation, 
there's a very popular one that is quite actually life-threatening, which is slimming of the jaw, shaving down the actual bone of the jaw. That's something that some women will do to change the shape of their face and just have a smaller, slimmer, less masculine jawline. So it's just, it can really run the gamut. And there are such hospitals, I mean, perhaps not as extreme, but cosmetic surgery clinics, these are abundant in Korea? Uh, cosmetic surgery clinics are abundant, absolutely. Um, you can get plastic surgery on any corner of uh, so, some of the more luxurious areas of Seoul. You know, the black market plastic surgery issue is pretty prevalent in the United States as well for breast implants and butt implants and everything. You, you do, I, in my research, I've heard horror stories of women who feel like they can't afford the real thing and they feel so insecure about themselves or they desire it so badly that they take the risk and they just go with someone not certified. Mm -hmm. Well, in the film, Mrs. Cho, the assistant, says to Yona, this place is supposed to promise perfection, but the only thing I see is ugliness. I don't think this is exclusive to Korea now when we get into that realm. The focus on appearance and conforming to societal expectations. I mean, we see it here with youth culture and certainly issues related to body size, body image. Is that part of what you are also exploring beyond the Korean cultural phenomenon here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I myself am Korean-American. I was born and raised here. So I was directly affected by American media and images of beauty in America. And it is very, it's insidious. It, it really does take a hold at a very young age of when you start to feel like you don't look good enough, you, you're not skinny enough, et cetera. It's, it starts way too young and it, it's hard to combat. You know, I don't know exactly what can be done. I think that something very important is representation. I do think that that's getting better. There are more, a variety of body types of curvier women, uh, of different skin tones that are being seen in the media now and with social media, um, more so than when I was very young. So I do think that is positive, but I, need, I think it needs to go even further. <laughs> I know you made the film before COVID-19, but there was an added layer of meaning to see Yona wearing a mask. She wears this mask as a shield from other people. And the mask of perfect skin that she wants after surgery. Mask wearing was a cultural norm in several Asian countries, even before the coronavirus. Why is wearing a mask in public not unusual? in daily life. That's true. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it is common. It was common before COVID-19 and it was a strange coincidence how that came to be after I shot the film. But 
You know, I don't know. I think that perhaps there's more wariness with hygiene in certain Asian countries of germs and cleanliness. That's just what I perceive is, is that that's, they're a little less lax about that than maybe in America. So I think that when people were sick, even before COVID-19, to wear a mask so that you're not, you know, spreading your germs to others was, was common and was normal. I visited Shanghai some years ago, and I was stunned by the number of people wearing masks, but it didn't take me long to realize that I think they were wearing them to protect themselves from breathing in the smog. Yeah, that's another reason. Absolutely. But does Korea have um, environmental air quality issues as well? Yes, very heavily. That is a point that I forgot that masks are worn because of the air pollution. Um, in Korea, it is quite bad. And it, I believe, comes mostly through the air from China because we're right next to China. And so, yes, it, the dust and the pollution, it is a problem there. I read that the ubiquity of face masks has made them an everyday fashion item now for South Koreans, with K-pop music stars helping to spread their popularity. So we shouldn't be surprised then, should we, that Koreans find face masks to be both a fashion statement as well as a health precaution? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a small country. It's a homogeneous country. And there are a lot of positives to that. And one, one thing is that trends do spread very quickly. So if something is made popular by a K-pop celebrity, that will spread and, and be common. Christina, what do you hope is the most important message that viewers will take away from this film? I think that what's very important to me is is to realize that the film is not anti-plastic surgery. Um, I do believe that every woman is entitled to do whatever procedures or anything they want to their own bodies. So it's certainly not that. But it's more so about questioning our beauty norms in society and how we allow it to affect young women, young men, how we carry it with us every day without even knowing, and and to really focus on our mental health and our own self-love, self-healing internally before addressing anything externally without without looking inwards. I think that's really important to me and my personal journey of of where the seed of the film comes from and potentially this, the journey of the protagonist as well, if after uh, the end of the film, she continues on. Did you have a facial scar? I did not, but I, I think that the, the facial scar to me was kind of an externalization of, of something internal that I felt at some point growing up. And, you know, you don't need a facial scar necessarily to, to feel like you don't uh, measure up and to see yourself as ugly or a monster. Um, it's so deeply psychological. So just, I, I wanted to explore that emotionally, but then show it in a very visceral way. This is a short film. Are there 
any discussions underway about making it a feature-length film? There are. I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm so deeply invested in, in this topic and in this story. I'm writing several different feature films that I hope I'll get made, that will be made. And this is certainly a topic that I'm considering along with a few similar others to, to explore in a feature. Atlanta-based filmmaker Christina Yoon. Her new film, Mirror, is screening online for the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival throughout this month. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The artistic director of Actors Express. Freddie Ashley was part of the first conversation I had as our nation was shutting down for the pandemic on March 13th. Now, Actors Express is launching Virtual Downstage, a theatrical online experience. Freddie Ashley joins us via Zoom to talk about the new season. Freddie, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be back with you. Always a joy to be with you. Now, when did you make the decision to keep this new series all digital? Well, you know, we've been in constant stages of planning and scenario planning and contingency planning since the shutdown started back in March, you know, wondering when we were going to be back to in-person programming. At one point, we thought we would actually be back by now, by the fall. And so we were trying to, you know, create rolling contingency plans to, to meet that. But as numbers didn't bear that out, uh, we knew that we would need to uh, continue programming in a, in a virtual space so that artists and audiences can stay safe but still participate in some really cool theater. Tell us about Fulton County Arts and Culture, how they have helped you ensure this new digital initiative comes true. Well, it's been really great. They've really stepped up and have helped uh, a number of organizations and also individual artists do online programming through their um, through their virtual fund. And, you know, one of the things that's challenging about virtual programming is that there's not a lot of revenue involved with it in terms of ticket sales. And so to have a little support from the county to kind of had the risk up front has been very, very helpful and has really allowed us to be able to do it. Uh, I don't think we would have been able to do this otherwise. Mm. Let's talk about the programming. It is quite comprehensive, Freddie. Will viewers be able to see the plays on demand or is it only in real time? Uh, it's a bit of a mix of both. Uh, Hometown Boy we presented in a live reading, uh, but the monologue series and Neat are both going to be available on demand. The monologue series will be available on the Actors Express YouTube channel beginning October 8th. We'll be dropping one monologue per week for three weeks. And then Neat will be streaming on demand uh, beginning later in uh, November. Would you talk about 
the the balance between the monologue series and the plays? Well, the monologue series was a way for us to commission some new stories really coming out of the current moment and a chance for us to work with some of the younger writers on the Atlanta playwriting scene. You know, the plays that we're doing have had their genesis prior to the current moment. They have an impact and they have a, a relationship with the moment that we're in, but we wanted something that would really come out of the present moment. So what I did was I contacted three writers and said, you know, write something about what gives you hope for the future. And you can interpret that as broadly or as narrowly uh, as literally or as abstractly as you want, but that's the prompt, that's the starting point. And so what they did was uh, came up with three very, very different ways of interpreting that, that idea and uh, three monologues that are completely different from each other, even though they're centered on the same theme. Can you just touch upon the titles? Yes. Uh, Quinn Xavier Hernandez wrote a monologue called You're Going to Do Amazing Things, which is about a young father filming a video for his uh, infant daughter who he's giving up for adoption and may never get to know. Um, Toward Joy is by Amina S. McIntyre, who is writing about a woman on the sort of brink of a restorative journey as she ponders the need for joy in the world right now. And then Avery Sharp wrote a play called SpongeBob Spectrum Pineapple People, <laughs> uh, which is a very funny plea for empathy, reconciliation, and understanding using a trip to Mellow Mushroom, uh, drunk watching an episode of Lovecraft Country, uh, and eating pineapple on pizza uh, as jumping off points for that conversation. It's very funny, but also really moving and resonant. Freddie, was your choice of doing monologues also for the safety of the actors? Oh, absolutely. Each actor has filmed their own monologue from inside their home. And that was also part of the parameters that we set up was that it should be able to be performed inside someone's existing home with uh, with little production uh, support otherwise. Uh, that way people could sort of do that from the safety of home. Uh, and it would also make it a sort of more personal story because the idea is that each one of these is taking place in the home of the character. Mm. Looking over the cast, the directors, the creatives involved in the virtual downstage is like who's who among the best creatives in Atlanta theater. Has this been a silver lining result of the pandemic? Well, I think that everyone is hungry to work and to get back at their craft. And so being able to you know, call Chris Kayser and ask him to be in a Zoom reading or to call Eric Little and say, hey, come and direct this video project that we're going to be doing. You know, it really is nice that people are able to, to be available for work. Um, I think that everyone would prefer to be doing it the old fashioned way, frankly. Uh, but in the absence of that, um, I, I think it's testament to how much everyone wants to be creating right now. 
before the November offering by Charlene Woodard, Neat. This has special resonance for our community. Would, would you tell us a bit about this story and, and why it's especially appropriate at the time you are presenting it? Sure. It's a really moving play about a woman reflecting back on her favorite aunt and uh, her aunt who had suffered brain damage as a young child and uh, but had a very pure heart and a beautiful spirit and really defined for her what womanhood was all about what it meant to be a woman and the kind of woman that she aspired to be. And it's a celebration of womanhood. It's a celebration of blackness. And, you know, one of the things I think is important when we're looking at stories uh, with um, a, a black centered story, uh, we're looking at stories that embrace joy and that embrace hope that I think so often what people do is go to these stories that you know, inhabit these worlds of pain and oppression. Uh, and these stories are necessary, but we also need to see people celebrating and loving and thriving and um, coming into their own. And that's one of the things that I think is so powerful about NEAT and so empowering about NEAT, uh, that it is the celebration of a pure heart and of uh, one woman's own um, personal story. Always wise. And always such a joy to talk with you, Freddie. Best of luck with this virtual series. And Thank you so much, Lois. Here's hoping we can see each other again in real life soon. The sooner the better. Freddie Ashley is the artistic director of Actors Express. Their virtual monologue series begins tomorrow with You Are Going to Do Great Things. More information on how to access the virtual downstage series will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Children's stories can have a lasting impression on our lives. Books we cherish as kids may remain with us through adulthood. It's bold to open and operate an independent children's bookshop. That determination is stated in the name Brave and Kind, a bookstore located in Decatur, 
Bunny Hilliard is the owner of the bookshop, and she's with us now via Zoom. Bunny, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, delighted to talk with you. First off, I should ask, what were some of your favorite books when you were younger? So when I was younger in elementary school, I read a lot of Ramona Quimby, so Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary and those, those kinds of books just about being a little girl and, and being a kid. And now that you can curate for kids, what sort of books are you offering at Brave and Kind? At Brave and Kind, our goal is to be very intentional about sharing books that have children, characters, and stories with children of color and different abilities and are very inclusive of people of all kind of backgrounds and families and family dynamics. Yeah, because children's stories are not just for children. Um, Many children's stories contain important lessons about morals and ethics. And children's books can be a wonderful way to approach difficult subjects. As you stated in your introduction, and as we printed our very first bookmarks for the bookstore to include in and with every purchase as a quote actually from the movie you've got mail which i was quite obsessed with (laughs) for a time Uh, and it says when you read a book as a child it becomes a part of your identity in a way that no other reading in your whole life does and i think that's very true Um, and as i mentioned you know when the books that i read as a child largely had faces on them that did not look like my own which at that particular time imparted on me kind of a sense that in order to be a character in a book or to be a person on television, then this is what I needed to look like. And that person did not look like me. As I envisioned creating this space, uh, had that in mind as I chose books that um, cherished and and celebrated uh, books of people of all colors and and backgrounds. Well, One of the titles your shop offers is Something Happened in Our Town, a child's story about racial injustice. At what age do you begin to make children aware of these tough realities, often terrible realities? Yeah, that's a a very... Difficult and personal family dynamic conversation. I think we do have to make children very aware of the world that they are growing up in so that they feel empowered to speak up and speak out against unfairness and and recognize that as well. In the description that you see on the website, I do also say You know, parents, I would suggest that you read this book to yourself before you decide to share it with your children, because I do think it's important to be able to have these conversation starters, but also, I want to say control the narrative, but be uh, aware of the narrative so that you can speak to your child in a way that resonates with them and that you feel like will be a very fruitful conversation. But it can also be very traumatic as well, especially I'm a mother of two, I have a daughter who's 11, 
and a son who is eight, and I certainly don't want him to go to bed at night feeling like he has to be afraid that the police might harm him. You know, while we may read these types of, of books together as a family, I am also very conscious of guarding their mental state as we share these stories as well. And one thing I'd also really like to say is that it is equally important to share stories featuring children and voices and characters of color that celebrate their lives, that include just that, children being children, enjoying what every child enjoys doing, riding their bikes and flying their kite and playing with their friends and learning something new. You know, part of our, our, the name of our store is Brave and Kind. And so it is our hope that the children will find stories in our space that inspire them to do and to be brave and kind. You know, I mentioned that growing up, one of my favorite books or the things that I enjoyed reading were Ramona Quimby and Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom. And so Renee Watson has written a book called Ways to Make Sunshine, which I love. And it's just um, about the main character getting ready to, for her talent show and just going to the swimming pool in the summer and that kind of thing. And so again, the books that we share inspire, they encourage, and they empower children to see themselves and to find stories that resonate with them. And so not only books that do talk about some of the hard things that children may experience in life due to their, the color of their skin or their different abilities, but also to see stories that uh, make them feel proud to be who they are. Bonnie, were you ever a teacher? I was not a teacher. I went to business school. I graduated from Florida A&M University. So I have a background in business. And after schooling, I worked for some financial institutions. And then I was actually a stay-at-home mom with my kids for a while. And as they began to go to school full time, I, I, I started to consider what I wanted to do with the literal next chapter of my life and uh, asked myself, what would I do if I knew I could not fail? And this was that coming to fruition. And so as a mom, I really enjoyed finding beautiful and diverse books to read with my own children. I wanted to do something that I knew would leave, or I felt would leave an impact on my community. And opening Brave and Kind was the way that I, I chose to do that. How are you managing? How is the store faring since the lockdown? So we were actually in a very, an interesting situation, as I know that lots of African-American Black businesses have, have not fared very well during this time of COVID-19 and having to close their doors. We have seen quite an uptick in sales over the last I would say really since the, the death of George Floyd as people flock to trying to educate themselves about race and looking for materials and, and education uh, to help as a resource with that. And so because lots of people are indoors anyway, and, and like you said, we're having to find alternative ways to supplement our time. Many people have turned to books as a way to do that. And specifically as a Black business owner, there have been many 
kind of lists created as folks try to, to share or folks try to support black businesses and ours has been one of those businesses who has been able to, because we pivoted to being an online store, which was never particularly our intention, but certainly necessary. And what we were doing since March when we were forced to close our doors has been the recipient of some of that support. Well, it is clearly very important work you're doing, much needed, and congratulations on following your passion. Thank you very much. It has certainly kind of reiterated the vision of the store to celebrate and to elevate diverse stories and really confirmed what I hoped would be something very important to our community. That was Bunny Hilliard, the owner of Brave and Kind Bookshop, located in Decatur. You can find her suggestions and more about the store on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. When Joe Alterman was named executive director of the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival, he told trumpeter Wynton Marsalis about it. And the legendary Marsalis said, Jewish music, fascinating. Not really a thing, but all over American music. Under Joe Alterman's leadership, the AJMF has become a Jewish concert and culture series with greater inclusivity as a goal. The organization has a new name, and Joe Alterman is with us via Zoom to tell us more about recent developments. Joe, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks for having me. We are ready for the big reveal. What's the new name? The new name is Naranana, which in Hebrew means let's come together and sing. Let's come together and sing, which could be extended to anyone and everyone. Why did you want to rename and rebrand the organization? Well, you know, when I initially came on uh, to this role about two years ago, uh, the organization had defined Jewish music as a Jew playing music. And as a Jew who plays music, that didn't quite ring true to me. So I was always determined to find out what is Jewish music. And I asked 200 people the question, I get 200 different answers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but my takeaway was that the Jewishness of the music comes from the story, not necessarily from the music. So to me, what that is, is really Jewish contributions to music. To me, Jewish music is not a genre, but like Witten said, it's all over American music. So I kind of knew that, you know, the past few years that the name isn't quite accurately reflecting what we do. I've hinted at it in interviews with you. It's kind of like, a, hey, I run the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival, but it's not what you think it is. And that's been a lot of my job the past few years. But I also realized that, you know, to a lot of non-Jewish people, the name sounds like this is religious music for Jewish people. And it's not that. And to many Jewish people, they think it's klezmer music. And it's not that necessarily either. Or sacred music. Exactly. We, you know, we did a concert uh, highlighting Leonard Bernstein with Bill Sharlap, or we did a concert highlighting the story of chess records. So it's neither of the preconceived notions that come to mind when people hear the, 
you know, hear the names. So I thought we need something that's a little more inclusive, but that's a little more accurate and a little more reflective of what we do. And also a little more in line with how, you know, music festivals are these days. I think most music festivals founded before 1980 have the name of the city and the word festival in it. But most music festivals today have neither. You know, it's all Bonnaroo, Spoleto, Coachella, all this. And I always thought if Bonnaroo was the Nashville Arts Festival, it wouldn't be what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so Naranana has that nice one word and um, melodic kind of ring to it. And in fact, many people recognize it from the popular Jewish song, Hava Nagila, which is sung at Jewish weddings, bar and bat mitzvahs, joyous celebrations. People join hands to do a circle dance and sing the song. that word, Naranina, come to mind during this time, Joe, when there's so little coming together in celebration? Well, we got really lucky. We've been working very hard on this for about a year, but uh, we, we luckily were working with a wonderful marketing agency in town called Three Owl, and it took us all a long time to find this right word. But I remember at a board meeting, though, when we said the word Naranina, everyone kind of looked at each other like, that sounds like a festival. And then we all found out it meant, let's come together and sing. And it just felt meant to be. It took us a while to get there, but when we got there, we knew we had it. <laughs> Did you have any resistance or um, objections from people who were associated with the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival before? Um, I say if I presented this ahead of time to 80 people, I'd say that 70 liked it right away. Uh, seven of them said, you know, I need to sit on it for a little while and all wrote me within, you know, a couple of days saying, oh, it's it. And I've had a couple people that, uh, you know, did mention how it's a little tricky to pronounce or, or you know, uh, it's got too many syllables, but I'm confident it'll grow on anyone who, uh, who thinks that. So I'm not worried. Just like I remember the first time I heard Bonnaroo, I thought, what the heck is that? <laughs> Joe, I know that inclusivity is important to your vision of the organization. Would you give us a few examples from events past that demonstrate how you welcome more voices? Oh, yeah. Well, to me, the thing is that music is for everyone. And, uh, you know, I'm executive director here, but I'm also a piano player. And I love how when I'm playing a gig, which has been a long time now, uh, I love looking out in the audience. And I know, you know, a lot of the people's political leanings and stuff, but I, I love looking out and, and noticing that no one's thinking about that right then. So music really is what brings us together. And I really want this to reflect that. And so reflecting the inclusivity, something that's very important to me as a jazz pianist with some very well-known and uh, uh, great musical jazz piano mentors who are Black, um, is the Black and Jewish relationship in American music. And so to me, every year uh, since I've started, we are doing uh, collaborations with ATL Collective. And what those collaborations are, are show showcasing the music and the story around a Jewish-owned record label. And so you know, these, like, for example, in 2019, we did the music of Chess Records, which is a very uh, 
important story. It's a prolific label, but it's a very complicated Jewish black story. to start with a label that had a complicated tale because uh, I thought it was important in bringing people together versus, you know, versus uh, Blue Note Records, which is a Jewish owned re record label where there's not really any confrontation there. It's just, it's everyone liked each other, it sounded like. But I thought that chess would be an interesting one because I'd, I don't hear a lot of people saying the negative stuff. And I noticed that was what was great at the end of the concert is that both a rabbi and a priest came up to me and said, that was so refreshing. You never hear that story told like that. And it was just the whole story. And so to me, that's, uh, you know, American music without the Jewish and black uh, collaboration is really a bad imitation of British music. So it's really important to acknowledge the stories and how American music really is a gumbo and how it came together. I was especially impressed with an event you did with the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews, and I think that was co-sponsored by the Bremen Museum. That's right, yes. What was so fascinating about that is we brought in uh, Ben Sidron to Atlanta to speak with uh, Reverend Andrews, and I remember uh, Reverend Andrews began the uh, conversation by saying, uh, I'm a black guy who studied Stravinsky, got my PhD in Stravinsky. And Sidron is a white Jewish guy who got his PhD in black music. And that's where the conversation began. And so to me, that was just, it was, it, that was totally the subject. Just bringing the two of them together. I know Reverend Andrews is a fan of uh, Ben's work. And it was just great to have them together and talk about this stuff. And they got really deep into it. It was fascinating. Tomorrow you will be part of a virtual series from the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. What can you tell us about the event? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm very excited and honored that our first event as an Aranana is a partnership with the Kennedy Center, and I have to thank South Arch for making it happen. Basically, it's my trio as a backing band, and we're going to have uh, local vocalists Carla Harris and John Liebman uh, performing throughout the, the hour-long concert. Basically, Carla's going to touch on some music from more, you know, early jazz through Simon and Garfunkel, I'd say. We're going to weave the Jewish story in. And then John Liebman is going to touch on some of the blues music and some of Bob Dylan and, you know, other more modern music that uh, has a Jewish story. So in some ways, it's kind of a retrospective of the of uh, 20th century, you know, Jewish involvement in American popular music. <laughs> Talk about complicated. Dylan and Jewish music. Okay. <laughs> you know, I asked someone, uh, what's, what's Jewish about Dylan's music? And they said, uh, he answers every question with a question. <laughs> well, Joe, I want to say mazel tov and congratulations on Niranana, the new 
Concert and Culture series. Thanks for what you do to bring people together through music. Well, thanks for what you do, and thank you. Pianist Joe Alterman is the executive director of Niranana, a concert and culture series. Joe and his trio will be featured in a virtual concert tomorrow at 4 p.m. from the Kennedy Center in Washington. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, Kenny Blank will be our guest. He'll tell us about a new online film catalog, AJFF Recommends, with 1,000 films for recommended viewing, gathered from 20 years of programming at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.